This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm John Campbell, a professor in the philosophy department here, and I'd like to welcome you to today's Howison Lecture. And can I say... It's just thrilling to be at an in-real-life lecture. It's so amazingly invigorating to have real people instead of boxes on a screen there. Um, so, hello. I'm glad you could all come. Um, today's lecture commemorates George Holmes Howison. Howison came to Berkeley in uh, 1884 when he was 50, and he um, founded the philosophy department here. He was evidently a charismatic and much-loved individual with rumbustious philosophical views which he developed with a great deal of force and exuberance. On his death, um, his many friends put together a fund, which is what's paying for today's lecture, um, in order to attract the most significant and influential thinkers of the day out here to the rural wilderness of California. Um, So we're particularly delighted to have Stephen Yablo here today. Professor Yablo did his BSc in Maths and Philosophy at the University of Toronto, and he also spent some time at the University of Pune in India. He did his PhD in philosophy right here at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's living proof that a Berkeley education won't let you down. Um, He went first, if I may say so, (laughs) he, he, he went first to Michigan and then in 98 to MIT, where he's been to the present day. He's written dozens of sharp, incisive, original articles um, that have established him as one of the most reliably interesting and significant philosophers alive today. He has three books, um, Things, uh, Thoughts, and the most recent one, Aboutness, um, develops a theory of the subject matter of a sentence in context. One theme of this book is that truths come to us wrapped in larger falsehoods. So often, I expect that all of us have been in this situation sometimes, often it will happen that you make a large claim and then someone points out the consequences of what you said and you say, well, I didn't mean that. I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about something else. And you want to kind of cut away the, 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 the bit that wasn't what you were talking about. And that once it's pointed out, as it hadn't really been systemically pointed out before, it's clear that that's a very important part of ordinary communication, what's going on in an ordinary conversation. But its systematic analysis is very, very difficult. And Yablo's book is, I think, so far as I know, the only certainly the first, and to this day, I think, the only full-scale systematic attempt at giving an analysis of this important subject. Um, His subject today is the demarcation problem in philosophy. 
This, in contrast, is an old problem, I think, or at any rate, by American standards, it goes back to the 1920s. <laughs> so it's very old. Um, but the problem, as he explained it, is that philosophy doesn't have a distinctive subject matter. Um, I mean, if you're an astrophysics, you can say I study the heavens. I, um, biology, you can say I study cellular, cellular uh, organisms. Um, but what is the subject matter in philosophy? You talk to a philosopher, you could find yourself talking about anything. So w w what is it that's distinctive of um, philosophical problems? Well, uh, Stephen says, it's their genealogy. But what's meant by genealogy? I can't wait to hear. So <laughs> please join me in welcoming Professor Yablo. Well, it's a, it's an absolute, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be sitting because you you don't want to be seeing me try to stand. Um, it's a thrill to, to to be here back in the place that I learned to the extent I did learn to be a philosopher. That was in the early 1980s back here uh, in Berkeley. Um, graduate school is kind of like childhood in a lot of ways. On the one hand, it sort of seems unforgettable uh, at the time. On the other hand, like childhood. Um, it can be very hard to remember <laughs> exactly what happened. And in some ways, uh, you know, what did they teach us? What was the Berkeley doctrine in those days? There was like a, a, generally a feeling that we were around, that great things were happening, even if we didn't quite know what they were. And certainly, whatever was, whatever was the Berkeley style of philosophy, I didn't do it when I was a grad student, and I didn't wind up practicing it out in, in the world, and I haven't done it in my whole life until now. Now I'm going to make sort of uh, a probably mis misbegotten attempt to sort of come to terms with some of the themes that I, I encountered in the 1980s, which were probably dimly understood even then, and I might just be putting a nail in the, in, in the coffin uh, right now, which is, which is which, you know, so, so this is, is kind of like what could have been my, my, my qualifying exam, but it, or it could be my disqualifying exam. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll see how that goes. Uh, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. After the the thanks, it's always good to move on to the apologies. There's always more of those. Uh, there's, there's different kinds of philosophy talks. There's the usual kind is somebody sort of enunciates a thesis and then kind of gives a long argument for the thesis. And there's a second kind where somebody kind of has an idea and they run it up the flagpole to see who salutes, as they used to say in advertising, speak. And, uh, uh, and then there's a third kind where somebody runs something of a flagpole to see who salutes, but then they realize they've kind of got it up so high and it's sort of foggy enough that people don't know whether to salute and they're not even sure they can see the flagpole. And then you kind of bring it down and people say, why is that thing at half-mast? Did somebody die? This will be more the, the, third, the third kind of uh, uh, talk. So I'm just going to be like throwing some stuff against the wall, whether it hangs together. If you find anything that you understand, then you have at least that on, on me and probably on the person sitting next to you. Okay, so... Um, Let's start. So Karl Popper, a long time ago, uh, you mentioned the 1920s. I think I don't know the whole history of this problem. But Karl Popper, a long time ago, wanted to um, explain what it was that separated natural science from other areas of inquiry. And the, the three that he mentioned, I think this is an interesting triple, logic, metaphysics, and psychoanalysis. And I'm, not, I'm not hopefully sure which he had the highest esteem for of those. Um, uh, scientific claims, he thought, were 
falsifiable, at least in principle. He said you couldn't really verify them because they had universal quantifiers in front. You can never verify that everything is a certain way, but you can falsify. Uh, it's one of those things that people say, oh, you can't prove a negative. Like, I don't know, who had that idea? You can't, you can't prove a universally quantified uh, claim, but you, but you can falsify a universally quantified claim by finding a single counterexample and... Um, that's what makes scientific claims uh, special. They're falsifiable. And this, I mean, I, I really should have researched this given that I'm leading with it, but here's what I remember hearing in 19... <laughs> from, I remember hearing about this from Feyerabend or somebody in 1981. Feyerabend probably, is probably not the go-to guy on, like, proper exegesis, but anyway, that's, that's, what, I, that's what I remember. Anyway, but, I mean, first of all, I mean, it seems wrong in both directions. Uh, it seems like you can falsify... He mentions logic as a contrast, because you can falsify logical claims if somebody says, this is unprovable, that seems like a logical claim, but giving a proof certainly seems like something you can do, and that would seem to falsify that, that it's the, the, the claim that it's unprovable. But more importantly, um, well, certain scientific hypotheses, those are the forms sort of everything is A or all A's are B, are maybe falsifiable if B is the right kind of predicate by finding a counterexample. If you switch to a slightly different one, like every A will eventually be B, then it seems like you have to wait till the end of time to find out whether this A will eventually be B. And you won't. You, know, you mentioned Dummett earlier. Dummett's uh, example of this was like a city will never be built on this spot. It's very hard to falsify because uh, you know you never know they might eventually clean up that toxic <laughs> sludge pit and build something here. Anyway. Um, so another way you might try to characterize uh, science or sciences is via subject matter, say what, what a scientific theory is about. Um, David Lewis had the idea of analyzing subject matters. I'm going to be using the notion of possible world here as sort of a complete way things could have been. David Lewis had the idea of analyzing subject matters as sort of relations on, uh, uh, among World. Sometimes people speak of logical space as the space of all possible worlds. And so um, the idea was that you would count worlds equivalent or similar where a subject matter is concerned. If things are just alike where that subject matter is concerned, uh, so take the, in, in the two worlds. So his favorite example was uh, the number of, number of stars. It's, uh, it's a way of kind of grouping worlds. You group them on the basis of how many stars they have. So... Worlds with zero stars go into the same cell. Worlds with exactly one star go into the same cell, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and so one might ask, well, can you? Um, and he allowed in principle that any way of grouping worlds constituted a subject matter. So you could ask, we could say, let's have uh, a subject matter that groups worlds together on the basis of, like, what kind of blows blows up or lets off. A, a nasty smell if you like mix substances together, you know. And you say, well, we'll say worlds are alike if the substances sort of blow up if both or neither uh, when you mix them together. And you know that could be a very kind of primitive conception of what chemistry is. Chemistry tries to get, you know, tries to sort of enumerate, elaborate, systematize the truths about that subject matter. What blows up when? Um, uh, you know. You could do a similar thing for biology. You know, count worlds similar if they have similar types of living things operating on similar principles. And biology tries to sort of 
boil down the most important truths about that subject matter. For a sentence to be, I should say, about a subject matter is, is for uh, its, super, its truth value to supervene on how things stand where that subject matter is concerned. So the number of stars is prime is about how many stars there are because if you've got two worlds with equally many stars, they agree as well in whether they have primely many stars. And that's sort of an idea that applies more more generally, uh, we could say, look, um, biology consists of whatever it might be, the most interesting uh, truths that never change in, or statements that never change in truth value between sort of biologically equivalent uh, uh, worlds. Um, of course, you'd ha- want to have some notion of what it is for a subject matter to be tractable, because not every way of grouping worlds together is going to lend itself to an interesting sort of body of, you know, field of inquiry where people say, let's try to get straight on this. Um, And that may be where philosophy comes in, because uh, philosophy is not known for its tractability. So one idea you might have is that um, subject matters that aren't as amenable to systematic treatment that aren't as tractable as, say, the subject matter of biology or of chemistry. Forgive me. I mean, everything I'm saying is like, uh, I wish it was an excuse to say if I had more time, I could make this seem less, less simple-minded. But no, no amount of time would enable me to make this seem less simple-minded. Um, uh, so you know, chemists find their time is well spent. They try to like get straight on the subject matter, and they find, oh, we can get a lot of the facts down in fairly short order on the basis of these sort of principles. And, and um, that, doesn't, that hasn't been at least my experience. In, I could have had a particularly bad go of it at Berkeley, where they sort of prided themselves on that kind of thing. And when you, when you came anywhere near solving a problem, that was evidence you didn't really understand the problem, which I'm somewhat <laughs> sympathetic to, actually. But um, uh, so you could take the view that um, well, you know, there's nothing in the subject matter approach intrinsically to, you know, that would limit it to subject matter of, of this or that science. So we might ask, what about philosophy? What's the subject matter of uh, philosophy? Um, and the difference would be maybe that philosophy's subject matter is intractable. But e- even so, there would have to be something we could point to as the aspect or aspects of reality that the discipline tries to get right. I assume that some... Not every philosophers are kind of very ecumenical in the kind of thing they'll take seriously, but mere intractability, I think, is not sufficient recommendation. Although to read a lot of journals, you'd think it would, that might be enough. But mere intractability is not sufficient recommendation for a philosophical study. Um, so there's one problem. Uh, only some ways of carving up logical space are proper objects of philosophical study. And it's hard to say which ones. But you might worry, conversely, that only some philosophical problems, this is closer to what I'm going to be talking about, correspond to ways of carving up logical space. So take the problem of determinism and, and, and free will. What would it even mean for world W to disagree with world W prime on how free will and determinism are to be reconciled or whether they're reconcilable. You say, oh, these two worlds, it plays out exactly the same way in these two, but not not in these two. It's just not clear where you would look for guidance on that. Um, What would it mean for worlds to disagree on whether their tables are material, as in Locke, or collections of ideas, as in um, uh, Barclay? Pun not intended. Okay. Uh, 
there will be some intended puns coming up, so I, so I thought I should mention that. Yeah. Uh, so, but these kinds of questions are, are premature, you might think. Just as you don't know, to begin with, which subject matters will turn out to be tractable, which lines of inquiry will eventually get spun off as sciences, uh, one doesn't know to begin with which subject matters will turn out to be genuine, which lines of inquiry will come to seem sort of misguided or spurious. Um, if the dimensions along which worlds can vary is not immediately obvious, on, just based on a priori uh, reflection, maybe that's not a bug but a feature. Maybe that's sort of the discovery procedure for which, which questions are spurious and which aren't. So I guess got to the end of page one. I'm already getting five minutes left. No one's quite said that yet, but I realize that um, I'm going to have to make some, some uh, choices. So... If, you don't, if there's anything you don't understand at the end, the explanation is that I wasn't given three hours like the last, the last uh, Howison lecture that I went to was Michael Dummett, who, who was given, who, I wouldn't say given, he took three hours. Was, I believe he and I were the only people left in Wheeler Auditorium. <laughs> I'm just looking through the crowd. Are you the one I'm going to be alone with? All right, okay. Uh, so, but that... That said, we should at least be open to the possibility that philosophy is not happily characterized in terms of the subject matter or subject matters that it tries to get right. This wouldn't necessarily make subject matter irrelevant to, to the philosophical demarcation problem because there's a different role, I'll be arguing, that subject matter uh, can play. Um, and we've already hinted at, it, at this different role uh, in saying that it's not obvious in advance which topics are worthy of study. That itself has to be studied. And this ought to remind us of a famous old paradox, the, sometimes called Minos paradox, or the paradox of, of inquiry. Um, if before engaging in inquiry, we needed to settle on the topic of inquiry, which it seems like it would be a good idea, unless you sort of go off in, in some crazy uh, direction, then it seems like um, you'd have to be able to find the proper topic for inquiry without having first engaged in any relevant form of inquiry, which seems like it might be a difficult thing to uh, do. So we seem to be caught in uh, a circle. Uh, and it seems like the only way out is for at least some topics to be sort of settled in advance, the kinds of things that you know are worth looking into before you've studied much else. And you might think, well, philosophy would be a natural fit for some of some of those. But now there's a certain kind of tragic possibility that uh, suggests itself, which is that we have to hit in philosophy on, what we're, on a topic of inquiry before we're in a position to tell whether it's really a tenable topic. We might have tied ourselves to the mast subject matter-wise in particular areas before we realize that, uh-oh, you can't help but contradict yourself if you're going to be sticking to this topic or holding yourself to, like, if you're going to take this kind of discussion to be answerable to how matters stand, M-wise, where end is the subject matter in question. That, to me, is going to be like the, the that's the birth of, of tragedy. I try to always get, get a European, uh, I gather that's an important, deep uh, philosophy book from Europe. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, so, but let's back up a bit. Generality and abstractness is a feature that's often been pointed to as a characteristic of philosophical subject matter. So Bertrand Russell seems to be speaking to the question of logic subject matter when he says that it's concerned with 
the real world just as truly as zoology, though with its more abstract and general features. And I hadn't realized this until just recently reading uh, a book by Ducasse from the 1940s about the nature of philosophy. Russell cites the same abstractness and generality in characterizing philosophy at large. So Ducasse says, by way of explaining Russell, that philosophical propositions may be asserted of each individual thing, much as the propositions of, of logic are asserted of each individual thing. They formulate properties which belong to each separate thing, not properties belonging to the whole of things collectively. Russell has used the word any for this. Anything is such a and such, as opposed to all things of such and such. The properties that apply in a sort of schematic way to any possible thing you could, you could, you could, you could think about. And he says, these properties are to be those that belong not only to each separate thing that exists, and this is an important wrinkle, we, we're getting back to, to each that may exist. This is in a section in Ducasse's book called Philosophy is Identical to Logic. So philosophy on this view has a maximally general subject matter, attributing properties purporting to belong to everything whatsoever. Worlds are philosophically equivalent. I use this equivalent sign with a little phi for philosophy. If they agree on which f's are such that for all x, fx. You can be sure that any halfway definite sounding idea I put out there is just for purposes of almost immediate ridicule, so you don't really have to, yeah, so don't worry about trying to like say, oh, that could be right. That's never a good thought. Really, right? uh, uh, um, but you might think, can one always dream up for two worlds, W and W prime, uh, an artificial uh, enough F such that worlds differ on whether everything of that world is it is F, so let F be the property of there's like over, coexists with over a million dogs. Um, you know, that's, you're then going to, worlds such that everything is F and that lack that property are basically going to be worlds with over a million dogs versus that don't have a million. Philosophers aren't interested in the difference between worlds with a million dogs and, and worlds with uh, fewer or or more. So you might think, look, uh, maybe that just shows that some kind of naturalness restriction will be needed on this predicate F. Well, what is it for a natural feature F to hold universally? Well, that might sound like it could be a natural law, like nothing moves faster than the speed of, of uh, light. But it doesn't seem to make worlds, first of all, that's not a plausible theory of natural laws at all. And second, it doesn't really make worlds philosophically different if they differ in their natural laws. That would make philosophy too much like science, and it's not supposed to be like, like uh, science. At least around Berkeley, it's not supposed to be like science. <laughs> um, worse, it could hold accidentally in a world that nothing moves faster than the speed of, of light. And so you'd have two worlds... Uh, or, or even at a, a, a much lower speed. It could, it could be that you know, accidentally nothing goes more than 100 miles uh, an hour, but you don't want to distinguish two worlds, certainly not on philosophical grounds, on the basis of whether anyone is speeding or not. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, well, what if we broaden the quantifiers, as Russell suggests, to cover each thing that may exist? Worlds would be philosophically unalike on this view, and they differed on whether necessarily everything is F. But if differing on whether everything is F was too easy, uh, without severe constraints on F, any two worlds are going to differ on whether everything uh, is F for some 
badly enough chosen f. Now it's going to be too difficult for worlds to differ in this respect because necessity claims hold, so it's often thought, and all worlds are in none. So you're not going to get two worlds, w and w prime. And one of them, necessarily, everything is f, and the next world over, it's um, not the case that necessarily everything is f. Again, one could try to spin, this is me trying to like, uh, trying to, trying to uh, win approval from like my former uh, Berkeley and overlords who talk this way. Uh, so one could try to spin this as a success. What philosophers are trying to talk about runs too deep to be represented. The subject matters we're trying to talk about, they're supposed to distinguish worlds, but in fact they're so deep that all the worlds are alike with respect to the, the matter in question. It's the kind of thing that has to be shown rather than said. Um, you know, mysticism and logic make rather strange bedfellows, you might think, but uh, around the time that people were uh, speaking of showing versus saying, they often appeared together in the titles of books and papers. Russell has a paper called Mysticism in Logic. Uh, Walter Stace has a chapter in his book about the nature of philosophy on mysticism and logic. Uh, Wittgenstein, of course, in the Tractatus, links mysticism with uh, logic. Part of the reason that the two are grouped together might be that both, on the one hand, claim to be profoundly informative, more informative than anything else, and both double down on that claim when it's pointed out that it's very difficult to point out a subject matter that they're both profoundly informative about. It's sort of like, it's your fault, you people in love with old-fashioned ideas of subject matter. We're higher than subject matter. Okay, words and things. So Russell contrasts the worldly approach with that of what he calls the linguistic philosophy, which cares only about language and not about the world. He gives a slightly bizarre analogy to bring out this contrast. He said he used to have a clock when he was a kid and had a pendulum. He found it went much faster if he took the pendulum out. Of course, he didn't tell the time, but it went satisfyingly quickly. Uh, And he thought that was really, really cool. And so he said, linguistic philosophy, this is Russell, the boy who preferred the clock without the pendulum because although it no longer told the time, it went more easily than before at a more exhilarating pace. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but this seems to pick up on a passage from Austin. So Austin said, we need to prize words off the world to hold them apart from it. Uh, but if that's where Russell got this idea, he's got Austin almost completely wrong, because The point of prizing words off the world for Austin is, quote, to realize their inadequacies and arbitrariness. So it would be a scandal if words would be arbitrary. But it seems like it's a problem even for Austin. Uh, I remember one story that Grace used to tell this graduate student days about there used to be this discussion group or lunch club uh, where they would talk about like philosophically deep topics, uh, which Austin would immediately try to deflate by coming up with the most superficial possible example. And so at one time, they were, I was actually going to use this, but you didn't use the word pleasure. You didn't say it gives me great pleasure to introduce the following speaker. But that's, <laughs> that was the suggestion that Austin made that would be a useful example uh, for a session on pleasure. What is the nature <laughs> of pleasure? He says, yes, as in it gives me great pleasure to introduce the following spe- uh, speaker. Uh, and, it, and I don't know if Grace, Grace, I don't know if Grace made this up, but he suggested that for a, a, a week when they were going to talk about relig- religious faith, that he said, yes, as in yours faithfully, at the end of the... <laughs> 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 yeah. Anyway. Uh, um, 
But anyway, Austin's idea is we, we try to realize the inadequacies and arbitrariness of ordinary words, after which, he says, we're to, quote, relook at the world without blinkers, which is in somewhat, you know, it's not a very Austin-like thing to say. Uh, and then he says, when we worry about what we should say when, we are looking not merely at words, but also at the realities which we use the words to talk about. We are using a sharpened awareness of words to sharpen our perception of, though not as the final arbiter of, the phenomena. This is not the Austin we remember or care to remember. Um, so a better term, Austin suggests, for this kind of philosophy that he's interested in is linguistic phenomenology, which is a, th a phrase that Ryle also used with more right, because he was actually interested in phenomenology, which I don't think Austin was. Um, but phenomenologists study representational devices with a view to their purport for the kind of wor world beyond. So they want to know what is imagination like, because they want to know, well, what is it purporting to tell us about the, 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 the larger uh, world. So Ru Russell's picture of linguistic philosophers as caring about language and not the world is way off the mark. They care about both. In fact, a fantastic example of linguistic phenomenology, here I'm really throwing time consciousness to the, to the wind here, so I've got, yeah, uh, is Russell himself gives this great example. He says, uh, he says it, um, when we think about like the identity of like, with Scott, is Scott the author of Waverly? He says, you always tempted to think of it as, are these things identical? Here's one thing, Scott, and here's this other thing, the author of Waverly. So you've got these two things, and are they uh, identical? And he says, of course, that's nonsense, but that's the way, he says, that's obviously absurd, but that is the sort of way one is always tempted to deal with identity. And Mark Cremins has a wonderful uh, paper on identity where he suggests that at a certain level that is what you're doing cognitively, that you sort of imagine things apart and you treat identity as though it was a promiscuous relation that it could obtain between distinct things. But it, it is interesting, and many philosophers have pointed this out, that if someone says, hmm, I wonder if Hesperus is phosphorus, you say, well, oh, that's stupid. You're wondering if a thing's itself? He says, no, I'm talking about two things, Hesperus and phosphorus. You don't, if you don't get that, you haven't even started on this topic. It's two things. We're wondering if they're identical. And there's a whole history of ordinary language papers with titles like a curious plural. It's so, like wondering why, how we get away with using the word they in connection with uh, identity. Okay, knowing what you're talking about. Um, so having no idea what you're studying or talking about in a field of inquiry certainly looks like an obstacle to making progress uh, uh, on it. It hasn't, hasn't turned out that way for me, actually, but I don't know. You may, your mileage may vary. Uh, so, but didn't Russell rely on his work on, in, in philosophy particularly his work in logic on a view of what he was talking about, that is actually not so clear. He goes back and forth on this quite a bit. Well, maybe, yeah, without, without seemingly realizing it. He says some of the time, as I just mentioned, that logic is about the world and its abstract and general features. Elsewhere, though, he says of pure mathematics, which for him is a branch of logic, uh, that it has no distinctive subject matter at all. And he goes on and on and on about what's really going on. I won't read the whole quote, but he has this wonderful thing at the end where he says, Mathematics may define as the subject in which we never know what we are talking about, nor whether what we are saying is true, which already is sort of uh, ambitious enough. But then he says, I love this, it's in the, on the side, people who have been puzzled by the beginnings of mathematics will, I hope, find comfort in this definition and will probably agree that it is accurate. <laughs> yeah. He did not lack for self-confidence for us. Okay. Um, 
So it's beginning to seem, based on this absurdly limited survey of like attempts to find things for philosophy to be about, uh, even looking at particular areas like, like logic, uh, um, it's, it's not easy to say what those things are that philosophy aims to be getting right. Um, maybe we were too quick to assume that subject matter blindness gets in the way of doing philosophy or making philosophical progress. It doesn't seem to have gotten Russell's way. Certainly, if a guiding subject matter for a field is a, field, is a subject matter you have to sort of get in place before you can make progress, as opposed to the kind of thing you can be constantly rethinking, the Nairat's boat, in the Nairat's boat way, the boat that you're rebuilding at sea while remaining uh, afloat in it, it's not clear philosophy has a guiding uh, subject matter. Well, does it have a subject matter... Uh, at all, um, even a non-guiding one, is there something of which philosophy aims to give an accurate account? Bernard Williams, for one, is uh, wary of this idea. One of his worries harks back to something like Russell's distinction between abstract, general, necessary features and particular local contingent ones. The distinction that Williams famously focuses on is between what he calls absolute features of reality and parochial features of reality. Both are, in a good sense, really there. But parochial features figure mainly in our conception of the world and that of like-minded creatures or similarly socialized creatures. Um, we would not expect them to turn up in the worldview of creatures with different sensory or cognitive endowments, uh, uh, different sympathies or different living arrangements, um, parochial features drop out as we abstract away from these idiosyncrasies and we are left eventually with the world as it presents itself to God or to a God's eye perspective. The features, oh, here's the intended pun. The features visible from this God's eye perspective are the ones he calls absolute. It seems a little bit funny when you're trying to get, I'm not, I mean, I think there, oh, there's something very, very deep there that, uh, but uh, that's not my, my job to convince you of that. I just say things with a deep tone of voice, and you say, oh, that must be deep. Okay. Uh, um, now, philosophy, as um, befits the majesty of the enterprise, starts out thinking that it's trying to get absolute features of reality right, as opposed to parochial ones that reflect just the way we happen to, 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 to do things. Uh, Philip Pettit has a nice old paper where he talks about, I, I have no first-hand knowledge of this, you probably do. Uh, there is like a distinction in the Sloan the Sloan set that Lady Diana came from between things that are Q and things that aren't Q. Q is a special way of being really cool that's like highly culturally specific. You pretty much have to be like a very small group to really get what it is to be Q uh, or not Q. Philosophers don't, well, Pettit did worry about what it was to be Q, but philosophers don't generally worry. Once it becomes clear that if that a feature depends on like highly specific, unlikely to be repeated social arrangements, a lot of philosophers lose interest. Not necessarily Williams and not necessarily, uh, not necessarily me, but um, well, that's what we're getting to. Um, um, so it starts out... When we, start out we start out thinking as philosophers, you want to get the absolute features... Right On the one hand, that seems awfully grand. On the other hand, it doesn't seem grand enough because you might think the absolute features are the ones that scientists are trying to get right. They're, try they don't, they're the ones that say, don't worry so much about color, worry more about mass and charge and so on and so forth. 
Williams says, it is hard to deny that the idea of getting it right, which has gone into the self-image of analytic philosophy, is one drawn from the natural sciences and that the effects of this can be unhappy. The absolute perspective, he says, even if we could achieve it, would not be particularly serviceable to us for many of our purposes, such as making sense of our intellectual or other activities, or indeed getting on with most of those activities. For those purposes, we need concepts and explanations, which are rooted, rooted in our most local practices, our culture, and our history, and these cannot be replaced by concepts which we might share with very different investigators of the world. So is William saying goodbye here to the kind of grand scale, abstract, the necessitarian, pretentious philosophy that we got from Russell? Well, yes, and, but in a deeper way, no. Necessity need not always be something that we expect to find out in the world as we sort of conduct like a large-scale, very general survey of the world. It could be something that we, and need for Hume and many other, you know, Kant and many other philosophers, it's something that we bump up against in ourselves as we encounter our own limitations when we're conducting that Survey, the way, the, way, the way Williams puts it is, various of our ideas and procedures can seem to be such that we cannot get beyond them, that there is no conceivable alternative. There is no alternative seemingly to predicating features of things or tracing objects through space and time or seeing the world as colored or shot through with causal relations or wondering what would have happened if so-and-so. We don't think, you know, that's getting old. Let's just give up on that. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, should, I say we don't think that. I mean, there are, you know, very famous metaphysicians around who who do think that this like questions of what would have happened in so and so are like parochial and don't really go sufficiently deep. Probably half of you know who I mean and won't take it as an insult, and the other one I can't tell you who I mean because then you, it, you might interpret it as an, uh, <laughs> as an insult. But not everybody thought things modality goes very deep. Um, okay. So certain ways of thinking force themselves on us, not because the world kind of cries out to be conceived on, in those ways on pain of being misunderstood, um, but because just that's how, how we roll, maybe in a very deep way because of our you know, physiological endowment or because of deep facts about our culture. Uh, we can't help but see external objects as colored or valuable. We can't help but look for patterns and read significance into them. We can't help but form expectations about the future and wonder why things went this way rather than that, and what's a fair distribution of goods. Part of William's point is that philosophy wants to get this stuff right, too. Even if certain questions are forced on us more by uh, cognitive social constraints, by how we're put together than by the world, that isn't a reason to despise them. Quine has a wonderful sentence about, puts this in a beautifully simple way. He says, to, to call something a posit is not to patronize it. <laughs> um, um, it doesn't make them philosophically uninteresting but Williams is making a deeper point too the capacity to operate in natural seeming ways is mostly a blessing a regress would threaten if every procedure that we engaged in had to be evaluated on the basis of some other more basic um, uh, procedure <coughs> but it's also a curse because if a procedure gets us in trouble but it also we see no real alternative to it it's not clear how we're to get ourselves out of the trouble because we've got nowhere else to, to look. And the curse and blessing aspects go hand in hand. This, the scripts that make life possible in their ordinary application <coughs> um, cause trouble when taken too far. So ordinarily, it makes sense to ask why and to seek causes. Otherwise, if 
something unexpected happens, you say, oh, that was one of the uncaused ones. Why are you getting into a sweat about it? Um, um, but again, you can take it too far. As Kant pointed out, you know, you shouldn't keep on pressing the issue of what caused it about the whole history of the world understood to embrace all the possible uh, causes. <coughs> Ordinarily, it makes sense not to scoff at possible sources of error. Taken too far, though, this leads to skepticism and ultimately madness. Um, here's an example, a much more recent example from uh, uh, Sarah Moss. Uh, um, uh, wondering what would have happened if we chosen differently is good policy on the whole. That's how you change your sort of ways of behaving. But we continue to do it even when there's no possible answer, not even a knowable answer, and we know that this is the case. Um, so if you offer me a bet based on the outcome of an indeterminate deterministic coin toss, and I don't take the bet for some reason, but I can't help wondering, uh, would I be rich? Because I always pick, I always pick tails. So I, I wonder, would the coin have come up tails? Well, if you think about it, if you set things up right, there's no answer to would it have come up tails. There's not even a definite way you would have tossed the coin. And if you specify it's indeterministic, there's just no answer to whether a chance event would have come out this way as opposed to the other. Um, still, um, it's, a, it's a dumb question, but you, you really can't help but wonder if the coin would have come up tails. Uh, Sarah gives this example. Uh, I doubt this coin would land heads each time if I were to flip it one million times. You know, I doubt that too. Uh, but of course, you never know for sure until you try. So I know what, what do you what do you what is the thought there? It's very hard to think. It's a very natural thought. You know, since we didn't do it, well, that's it's a fugitive fact forever. Whether it would have come up a million times in a row, we cut our. It's sort of like. You know, as, the, as, as, as space expands, there are certain things that are moving away too quickly for light to make it back. We lost our, if we didn't look in time, uh, we would have looked in time, we would have maybe been able to see that phenomenon, but now it's too late, so we'll never know. So we, yeah. Um, okay. Now we're getting closer to the kind of philosophy that, uh, a kind of philosophy that isn't or is not primarily about getting things right. So a lot of philosophical problems go like this. On the one hand, we can't help but think that X... And yet X cannot be maintained in full generality, at least not together with Y, which seems just as compulsory. Kripke, I like to think, is hinting at this kind of perplexity when he gave his, his uh, recent book of collected papers the title Philosophical Troubles. It's sort of you get into these kind of jams. The form of interesting philosophy oftentimes you know, isn't uh, philosophical Finding. I mean, rarely, there are very few philosophical books like uh, my philosophical discoveries. That wouldn't sell, <laughs> sell very well. Philosophical troubles, yeah, you get into various kinds of gems. You, you, you get yourself into uncomfortable corners um, when you're a philosopher. Um, and of course, this idea goes back to Wittgenstein and much earlier. The kind of philosophy that grapples with basic predicaments is not the whole of our field, but it seems in many ways the oldest and the deepest. And this is a great uh, benefit. Davidson used to always say, we won't run out of problems very soon. This is a great thing. Uh, like further he was to a solution, he said, oh, great. We're not going to run out of problems. Um, the great thing about sort of predicament-based philosophy is that you can count on it, on it always to be there. Our predicaments almost by definition remain as the special sciences are spun off. One could call this kind of philosophy the perennial philosophy if that name were not already Taken for what well, I don't know, but I know there's a, a book by T. H. Huxley with it, titled "The Perennial 
philosophy. Um, and then I was going to call it problematic philosophy, uh, but that title is also already taken by Bergson, apparently. Okay. So, see how I, I'm mentioning various people from the other side of the ocean? That's a very Berkeley thing to do. Okay. Um, so grappling with the predicament need not always be a matter of dissolving it or fighting free of it. The first step is oftentimes gaining some kind of perspective on how it arises. How did we get into this jam? Uh, Leonard Cohen has uh, a line in one of his songs that captures this perfectly. He says, I've been where you're hanging. I think I can see how you're pinned. That seems to me a very philosophical uh, uh, thought. Hermeneutic philosophy, uh, I, I'd love a better name. I'm sure there, there pretty much has to be one, is the kind that offers to hold us up before the mirror so that we can see how we're pinned. The possibility or desirability of getting unpinned can then be left as a further question, and it might well turn out, for reasons we'll discuss, that getting unpinned would be even worse. Um, so a philosophical intervention has two main parts on this uh, proposal. Philosopher first presents us with a model of how someone could wind up in a certain sort of jam or perplexity. Uh, subject matter has a role to play here. That's what we're going to get to. Then we're invited to consider whether we ourselves might not be in this very jammed up uh, 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 position. Um, so this distinction that I'm getting at uh, between illustrating how someone could get jammed up and then invitation to ask yourself you know, to wonder, could not, might not you be jammed up in that exact way, uh, uh, is illustrated by an Old Testament uh, parable about King David, King David, I guess, was God's favorite. I hadn't realized this entirely until I read around. All these things. I think somewhere it says he's a man after my own heart or something like this. Some incredibly like banal thing. He liked King David a lot, except he did. And you know, the Leonard, there's a Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah. Uh, uh, I heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord. If you do a search, uh, David pleased the Lord. I think 62 times. Uh, but here's the, I want to talk about this one time he didn't please the Lord. He really pissed the Lord off. Uh, and this was uh, 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 the story of David and Bathsheba. He obtained Bathsheba as his umpteenth lover uh, by the device in part of getting her husband killed in battle unnecessarily. Properly displeased, the Lord sent down a moral instructor with the unlikely name of Nathan uh, to teach David a lesson. So Nathan came down and he said this to, he says, David, there were two men, one rich and one poor. The first had a very large flock. The poor man had only one wee little ewe lamb. Uh, I think I just made up the wee because it uh, comes from you. By the way. <laughs> uh, one day a hungry traveler came to the rich man, but he was loath to take anything from his own flocks to prepare a meal for the guest. So he took the poor man's one little lamb, which he treated like a child. The Bible goes on and on about like, how much this guy loved his little ewe lamb. Uh, when David heard this, he flew into a rage. The one who did this deserves to die. He shall pay four times over because he did such a thing and he showed no pity. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. This was a parable. For, like, to illustrate what David himself had done, you can connect the dots. It actually took me a surprisingly long time to connect the dots, but you can see that yeah. he, 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 he who already has much, he to whom who, he, he, more should not be given to, he who, to whom, he who already has much, and he certainly should not be taking more, although that seems to be the way increasingly. 
Um, so Nathan helps David to see how he's sinned, not how he's pinned. But the basic idea is the same. The philosopher starts by telling a story. The philosopher invites us to try it on for size, pointing out that we would be confused in much the same way that uh, we are confused if things had played out as in the story. I'm going to try to tell that kind of story. Subject matter has a crucial role to play in it. So um, da, 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 da. I think maybe I should just sort of skip a bunch of... St- okay, I'm going to do the next section. Direct to truth. So Nelson Goodman, in a lovely paper called Truth About Jones, made an important point about truth-telling. That someone's testimony uh, is, one, false, and two, about a certain individual, Jones, uh, does not mean that the testimony was false about Jones. It could be that the false bits all concerned this other guy, Smith. He was exactly right about Jones. So his testimony is false. It's about Jones, but it wasn't false about Jones. This actually came from some stuff of Davidson's about the logic of, of, of adverbs. You can, uh, you, 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 you can sing a certain song and you can do it badly without singing that song badly. Because what you did that was bad was something that didn't have to do with your rendering of the song, but you just you stood too far from the mic or something like that. Yeah. Um, okay. So the great thing about directed truth, truth about a certain subject matter, like Jones, uh, from a her- hermeneutic perspective, is that it lets us tell, in some cases, a story about how we're pinned. How does it come about that we see no alternative to these statements A, B, and C when we know full well that they can't be true together? Well, maybe it goes like this. A, B, and C are supposed to be about a certain subject matter, M. That's their intended topic. That's what they're supposed to address themselves to. They are all true about that subject matter, maybe even analytically so. Uh, Truth about that subject matter suffices if they're genuinely about M for truth. So you can be forgiven for thinking that statements are true if you're duty-bound to regard them as about a certain subject matter about which they're true. And what happened is, unbeknownst to you, they kind of got away from the subject matter that was assigned to them, which is bound to... Happen if you're not, if you don't have this godlike power that we sometimes grant ourselves of deciding what we're going to be talking about in advance. Um, so, this kind of story, if you can tell it, does not unpin us. We still can see no good alternative to these statements A through C. But it shows that our predicament is not just an unforced error. So, people used to sometimes make fun of Berkeley philosophy by saying it's like a series of unforced error, which seemed to me, even in the, in the battle days when I was here, it's, no, it's a series of forced errors. It's not unforced errors. Um, <laughs> philosophical problems are sometimes, at least, like blind spots, reflective of a system that's basically working as it, as it should. This is how a system that's working properly, it will have this exact defect. You know, it would not be good for our visual systems overall to try to get rid of our blind spots. Um, when you think about how the eye works, you'll be able to see even less afterwards. Um, Okay. So the question of why our statements can't be wholly about their intended subject matter, why their truth values have to be sensitive to distinctions not contemplated by M, um, the assigned subject matter, um, is interesting. And the short answer is that the world may be unkind. It may contain 
unexpected situation such that the three statements cannot be true about that subject matter together, though they each can be true about it apart. This situation was not on the cards when the language was introduced and assigned to subject matter. So I'm going to skip ahead. You're not, you're not going to get, hear me talking about regulative ideals, um, which is going to be healthy for both of, both of us. Um, so I'm just going to go to some philosophical messes where this kind of thing arguably arises. I'll go, th I'll, I'll, I'll go through maybe two of the three messes I've got down here, and then I'll conclude. So, Sorites paradoxes. So predicates like red are supposed to be applicable on the basis of casual observation. Observationality means that the look of an object decides its color, at least if your eyes are working right, with the consequence that any pair of objects indistinguishable in point of color must satisfy the condition. I'm quoting Crispin right here. That's why there's so many relative clauses and the sentence is going on longer than it should must satisfy the condition that any basic color predicate applicable to either is applicable to both. And he says, this is a very fundamental fact about their senses, whose sacrifice would be possible only at great cost. So this gives us the crucial premises of a Sorites par paradox. You know, X is red because X is, say, a right tomato, and then you have a Sorites sequence of objects getting slightly closer to orange all the way down the line, you say if x is red, so is x prime, if x, is prime, if x prime is red, so is x double prime, if xn minus 1 is red, so is xn. And then you have to conclude, if, by modus ponens, if xn is red. This is false, because xn is, is, is an orange. So these intermediate conditionals cannot all be right, because they take us from a truth, a clear truth, uh, to a falsehood. And the hermeneutic problem is to say why they seem so right. Do existing theories make this comprehensible? Well, on, and here I'm going to be uh, even more unfair than I've been uh, so far. So take epistemicism. Epistemicism says we can't know any of the premises to be false, given a margin for error constraint on knowledge. You can never know that you know x5 is red, but x6 isn't red. Um, um, but I don't know about you, but the fact that I can't know something to be false really does not go very far towards explaining why I persist in insisting, despite that contradiction follows, that it must be true. There's like a lot of things that I have trouble knowing to be, you know, I, I have trouble knowing it to be false that there were ever exactly an odd number of dinosaurs, but I don't say, well, there, therefore there must have been like exactly an odd number of dinosaurs. Uh, Supervaluationists, uh, uh, say that, oh, I'll skip, skip them. Contextualists say the point that the pairs that we're attending to cannot differ in quote-unquote color, what the word color is in context sort of standing for, the word red is in context standing for, the switcheroo between the red, there has to be a switcheroo between the red and the not red things, but it's always elsewhere, it's always somewhere that you're not looking. But do we really doubt the existence of lines that cannot be made Salient? I, I'm perfectly willing to grant that there are lines that, I mean, if, that, if the fact that I cannot make the line between like F and not F salient was enough to convince me that there is no such line, then uh, it should seem salient to me that things never differ non-saliently. But I'm pretty sure I accept that things often differ non-saliently. So the idea that it's just that if you look at two things, that's not where the action is happening, that doesn't seem like a sufficient explanation of why 
these, these premises seem sort of undeniable. Um, well, I want to say that they seem undeniable because we feel ourselves and we mean to be talking about a subject matter that lies fully open to, to view. Um, Lewis calls this subject matter observation. It groups worlds together which look the same to casual ob- observers. Each of the premises, all of the form, like if this one is red, then that one just like superficially indistinguishable from the, from the original one is also red. Um, those are, by definition, true about observation. And, and, and this is so because basically what it is to be true about observation or true about any subject matter is uh, a thing is true about a subject matter in our world if, even if it's false in our world, it's not false because of how our world is where that subject matter is concerned. You can find another world that's just like us, ours, where that subject matter is concerned, where it's true. The subject matter is observation. Uh, I've got these two things that look exactly the same in color. They... I can certainly find a world where they really are exactly the same in color, where that looks exactly like our world. Just go to a world where they look just the same, but they really are the same in color. That's enough to show that it's true about observation, or about observational red, that if the one is uh, uh, red, then the other one uh, is red. Uh, and so here's the, here's the story. Uh, it's one to four on uh, whatever page of the handout we're on. Uh, the conditionals, in fact, address the issue of things colors. That's the only thing that's really around for them to address. This is supposed to be the same as the issue of their observational colors. There's not supposed to be a difference between color and observational color. Um, This is red, therefore the next one over is red. Seems true because it is true about observational colors, the intended subject matter. This doesn't make it true, period, because we live in a fallen world. We left Eden. Color is not observational color. I spent a while like, looking around for pictures of Eden to make clear that it didn't contain any Sorite sequences. <laughs> but even you'd think that would be easy because of how big can a painting be. But they tend to be full of color. I wasn't even sure I could, de- I could determine that there weren't any Sorite sequences in paintings of Eden. Um, um, okay. So each of the premises seems true for the best possible reason. It is true of the issue that we understandably take it to address. What is not true, even about that issue, observational color, is their conjunction. There's no single observational duplicate of our world in which adjoining color patches really stand or fall together. Redness-wise, you have to go to different worlds, so to speak, to witness the truth about observation in our world of uh, each of those Premises. And now the tragic, as- tragic aspect. If not for Sorites sequences, these sequences of objects that probably didn't like exist till the industrial age, where you couldn't distinguish like pairs of them. Um, see, I, I, I'm a full-blown Luddite. I mean, I really think that was like that's when we that's when things really went bad. Uh, when you know industrial uh, cr- you know, the science of, of making color chips developed. That's when. Uh, Sorite sequences really became inescapable. Uh, who knew back in Eden that life would be unkind in this way? Colors clumped up nicely, and observationality seemed like a great constraint. Only later did the world begin to play tricks on us, and even now we are most often in Eden-like situations with big gaps between the reds and the oranges, lots to gain and little to lose by sticking with the original subject matter. Okay, 
Now I'm going to skip the other two examples and just go to the very short conclusion. So there's time for a question. A little bit of time for a question. Um, lessons, if any. Uh, philosophy is as much about seeing how we're pinned as about finding the truth. Aboutness sheds less light than one might have hoped on truth-seeking philosophy, philosophy, but fortunately, that's not the deep Berkeley kind of philosophy, so who cares? It sheds more light than one might have thought on philosophy seeing how we're pinned aside, or at least so I'm suggesting. We get pinned because we have to tragically commit ourselves, at least with regard to very basic subject matters, to their being on a certain topic, which it turns out they can't consistently be about, but no one was in a position to know it at the time when we had to sort of settle what we were talking about. Um, so it's because we live in a fallen world that we wind up con contradicting ourselves, and we should try to make our peace with that. And oftentimes, the ways we contradict ourselves are better just like put up with, uh, the, the thought is, than um, done away with by trying to improve a concept in, in a way that doesn't lose its motivational force and that we have trouble even kind of using in a spontaneous way. Thank you very much. So we're open for questions now, but maybe just to get the ball rolling, I, I, I could ask you a little bit about um, the, the view you're developing in the last tranche of the paper. Um, so I guess through the middle of the 20th century, people would have said, I mean, particularly later Wittgenstein, for example, would have said, um, very much like you, I think, uh, that the philosophical problems are forced on us. Um, we find ourselves pinned, as you say, and we, we, we can't get out of the fly bottle. That kind of yeah. language is very familiar from that kind of uh, time. And so th that's like your picture, if, I, if, if I'm getting it, on, on the insistence on the inescapability of these errors that, that, that we can't see our way out. Um, and the diagnosis there was always, well, there's something about our language that we don't understand, that, that, that we're not finding our way about yeah. in, our, in our language properly. And then, as, as I understand the way the subject uh, that philosophy has gone in the meantime, um, all that stuff about language seemed to get thrown out of the window. And the idea was, no, we are going to address the world. <laughs> language is just a small part of the world. We are going to address it directly. And then there's always something a little bit mystifying about uh, how do you do that exactly? Um, and... Uh, if I understood what... Uh, I'm not sure I've understood what you're doing at the end, so this is really just to ask for clarification here. It seems like you're suggesting a picture where there are similar intractable problems. Similarly, there's an, there are these intractable problems, but they're coming up because of something about... You, you didn't use the word representation, but yeah. if I can, something about the representations that we're using to think about the world where we're subject to these errors as to what the subject matter is and whether two representations have got the same subject matter or not. And it doesn't, 
<laughs> How should I say? The vibe is quite different to a Wittgenstein vibe. Yeah. We're not really talking about a natural language like English directly. We're talking about, I don't know, maybe propositions or something yeah. like that, but something that has a subject matter yeah. anyway. So it's a, it's a little bit like a, a, a linguistic approach, but there's a suggestion of something more methodical, that you, uh, I mean, the whole idea of the, the 20th century approach was yeah. um, you can't see anything methodical here. You can just go case by case. But the, the idea is you could do something a bit more methodical. Is, is, uh, am I getting the, the, the thrust? Well, I, first, I just first want to say how absolutely charming it, is, charming it is that you chose the word methodical for anything that I, <laughs> I but no, I, I, to tell you the truth, I had not thought about it. So I, I was thinking of this very much in linguistic terms and in terms of like, you know, subject matter as a feature of, of, of linguistic representational items. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're, you're, you're right that it, there, there might be a version of this uh, where, you know, you, you, you could ask yourself whether you know, uh, a, a certain kind of, you know, perceptual system has a subject matter that it's somehow pre-committed to. It may be committed to in a way that it's hard for it to... You know, like, so an example that um, Ken Walton gives about perception uh, that, that's kind of interesting is uh, he says, you know, even after learning relativity theory... It's very hard to work it into the content of your perceptions. You, uh, you know, you know that there's no such thing as sort of anything that's absolutely at rest. But it's, if I say to you, okay, uh, let's just you know perceive this scene just like it is, but just subtract out the absolute rest part of it. Like think of everything as just moving relative to everything else. And it's a very hard trick to, yeah. to pull. And so, you know, it could be that our, um, you know. I, I, I'm, I'm just saying this to sort of be, be cooperative. I have nothing to, 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 to like support it, but it's an enticing possibility that you know, our, our you know, certain perceptual systems sort of evolved under uh, under you know uh, pre-Einsteinian conditions. I think that's a fairly safe bet, and um, and they wound up sort of you know over uh, uh, committing themselves. I mean, some stuff that that that. That you were kind of about individuals and the role that individuals play. I mean, you could you could well imagine that yeah. our conceptual schemes evolved at a point where it was kind of useful to have individuals sort of be part of like the the fundamental structure of the universe. And if it later turned out that maybe that wasn't the best way to go, well, that ship already sailed. So yeah. <laughs> you, you can't. So I, I'm very interested in that. I mean. That's an interesting uh, possibility. I mean, there's also, I mean, I suppose in moral and, and normative philosophy, which I've seen from a distance on different occasions, like, you, you know, it, it could be that, uh, you know, there's some, you, you, people, people sometimes say this, that, you know, when you want something, Unless you're experiencing it as sort of like a fetishistic want, where the thing you want has got no more to recommend it than the fact that you, for some reason, want it, um, you're bound to think there's something worth wanting in the object, and you're picking up something valuable, uh, 
uh, about it, you know, I, it seems sort of a little bit in the spirit of what, of what this is your idea, not mine. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't meant to be mine. <laughs> it never occurred to me till you talked. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, I, can I just ask you one more thing? Can, can you just say a bit more about the idea of subject matter and how that comes into your picture of what a philosophical problem is? Uh, um, yeah, yeah, the, 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 uh, the, the idea is, 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 is that, um, well, you know, a subject matter uh, for, uh, well, a subject matter considered in, in itself is sort of a way of dividing up worlds. Worlds are alike or different yeah. where that subject matter is concerned. The subject matter just is that way of dividing up worlds. So on the simplest version, it just is a way of partitioning all the worlds into different Classes, which are the the ways things can be, where that subject matter is concerned, um, uh, and then there's a for the next question is what is it for a sentence to be about a subject matter? The the answer that Lewis gave is a sentence is about a subject matter if uh, the sentence can't vary in truth value, unless there's variation in how things are where that subject matter is concerned. Um, that has the problem that sentences can be about. That has the problem that say. The sentence, I'm hungry, is about the subject matter, how everything is in every possible respect. Because you divided things up so finely that that sentence can't differ in truth value without changing how something is in some possible respect. Whereas to the extent that we want to talk about the intuitive subject matters of sentences, we want not uh, something that the any old subject matter that the truth value supervenes on. We want the subject matter that the sentence is exactly about. And for me, that's something you partition the worlds into the different ways in which that sentence can be can be true. So you don't. Do, so if the sentence is "I'm hungry," you don't distinguish worlds with like a million dogs versus yes. more dogs because that's got nothing to do with why it's true that I'm hungry. So that's the notion of of, of subject matter. I, I, I kind of left some of that out, but it's it, it, sentential subject matter is what a sentence is exactly about, and and uh, a sentence is about. Color are supposed to be exactly about something to do with ob 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 observation. Yeah. yeah, even that's maybe well, a bit too coarse. Yeah, I'm sorry. But just one more thing. But perhaps I picked you up wrong. But I thought that when you're talking about the diagnosis of the Sarites, yeah. for example, that um, that this was something about subject matter was going to be your diagnosis of wh wh uh, yeah. wh 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 where this intractable problem seems to come from. Right. Can yeah, so there's, there's the naive, to use a phrase that Chalmers uses, uh, Edenic subject yeah. matter. What we thought we were talking about when living under these sort of ideal conditions where certain problems hadn't yet arisen, so we could afford to think we were talking about that. And in fact, we would still be talking about that if we hadn't ran, run into problematic situations elsewhere. So, so, there, so there's the intended subject matter, matter yeah. which is what you want the truth value of the sentence to be at the mercy of. Okay. And then there's, is there anything out there that can play that role? So with color, maybe not. And so if you're going to keep on talking that way, Either you can stick with the intended subject matter, but then you're, you're going right. to 
get stuff stuck on your shoe every now and then, and you're gonna, there's got to be some apologetics that goes with that sort of discourse. Yeah, okay, yeah, that did happen. They came in a bit more clearly with the stuff that I didn't talk about, about the liar paradox. Or, yeah. right. uh, uh, so, so there's... So, so, uh, certain kinds of talk are supposed to be about this and that the truth value of those sentences is at the mercy of these distinctions and not those. Unfortunately, there's no consistent way of doing that because the world was unkind. So if the sentence is going to have a real subject matter in the sense that it exhausts the stuff that the truth value is sensitive to, it's going to have to go beyond anything we are prepared for. And either someone like the International Bureau of Weights and Measures or someone mm. is going to have to develop a constituency for what this new yeah. subject matter is going to be and get everyone to be on the same page, or more likely we'll just keep on stumbling along the way okay. we do. Yeah. So the, the, the distinction is between uh, uh, d- want subject matter that you wanted and the, and the subject yeah. matter, the ones that are actually available to consistently speak yeah. about. Yeah. That was really helpful. Thank you. Um, okay, I, I think you've been wishing to ask a question. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so it seems like another way of thinking about this is that it's not in terms of a distinct subject matter as defined by a part of the world that we're trying to cover, but maybe based on the way that we relate to the subject matter. So at the ground, philosophy is really just a bunch of people who discuss things and call themselves philosophers and go to philosophy departments and philosophy t- t- talks. And... I mean, could philosophy simply be a study of the things that we don't know how to think about yet? Like, we once we know or believe we know how to do something, it tends to go into a different field, a different discipline, and we, we get a name for it. And, like, there seems to be a sociological principle that if if we like to talk about things we don't know how to turn into sciences, then we're almost necessarily stuck on right. the things. right. But no, that, and that is, I, was, I was trying to play lip service to that, that kind of view early on. Uh, you know, philosophy is you know, questions that don't, haven't got spun off and maybe aren't eligible to be spun off into sciences. But that didn't seem to be, to be enough because there's, like, there's no shortage of such subject matters or questions out there. Some of them are philosophically gripping and some of them aren't. And I was trying to suggest that at least one source of the grippingness is that uh, 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 we can't say goodbye to, the, to certain subject matters because it's sort of, it's, it's, it, right. that would be like uh, saying, you know, I hate this boat, let's burn it, and we'll be out on, at sea, and then eventually, hopefully, some better planks will drift by and we'll find a way to put them together into a better boat. You, you've got to be you've got to be adrift in something, and what better than philosophy? <laughs> right. Thank you, uh, Shamik. Um. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot. I just wanted to I don't know if this is on. Uh, pick up on what, what what you said to John right at the end there when you said like so if we wanted to resolve things in such a way that we weren't you know, in the case of color in in such a way that we were not stumbling over ourselves every now and then. We would, you know, maybe leave it to the some international council to yeah. decide the matter. Is that the case in in all cases, or I mean, some? I was wondering whether the, an, another possibility is that the absolute conception of the world, in Bernard Williams's uh. phrase, could dis- decide the matter, and and the, the question would be how to speak in a way that reflects that. Mm. Were you explicitly wanting to rule that out, or maybe leaving it open that different different problems might lead to different solutions? And well, I guess I wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking of those as so. 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. Like in some cases, so, might right. it be that the absolute yeah. conception has, yeah. can determine the so right he, way to here, go? Here's another thing I learned, at, I learned at Berkeley. This is like the or philosophical error, is to think that just because there's the, 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 the relative distinction between ways of talking and thinking that are more or less reflective of idiosyncratic aspects of our, you know, the ways we're put together, you shouldn't try to build that up into such a thing as the, the, the perfect absence of like, since we were able, it's sort of like, you know, since we were able to make this tower a little bit taller, let's just, you know, postulate a maximally tall tower, whatever exactly that would be. <laughs> that, that would be. So, so I guess my, 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 my thought would be that, you know, uh, uh, there's certain kind of fetishization. You can, there's, a, there's a negative way of doing the absolute parochial distinction, and there's a positive way. I don't know what Bernard Williams had in mind, but I would guess it's more the negative way. There's certain ways you could sort of Im Im improve your perspective by making it kind of less mucked up with things that we could easily transcend. But the idea of, you know what? I'm tired of transcending everything one by one. Let's just like take a long weekend. <laughs> Let's transcend everything. <laughs> Yeah, and so that so that's why you might need at a certain point you're going to need sort of social organizations that sort of say uh, you, you can't just hand over responsibility to the world for to solve these sorts of problems for us. You know, if you spy a chance to get yourself out of certain jams, there might be no alternative but to get a big enough group of people together to say we'll all try to get out of the jam in that same way without supposing that will have got out of all possible, you know, there'll be later jams 100 years from now. Uh, 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 but even to get out of the present jam. So I, I've been interested in, 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 in this stuff uh, about like constantly attempts to sort of revise what a, a meter means or what a second means and so on. And there's a way in which we, we definitely feel we're, we're getting a, a, a better grip on what second talk was about, but it's not because once we get away from like human sensibility, we'll see what a second really was all along. You know, arbitrary choices are gonna to have to be made and constituencies will have to be developed for let's all do it that way, otherwise we'll yeah. Right. Thank you. Um, I wanted Hi, to ask about the relation between the uh, points that you make in the curse and blessing section and the idea of this kind of predicament-focused um, conception of philosophy. So the way that you motivate the idea of these philosophical predicaments that we get ourselves into, these jams, is, if I've understood it correctly, that there are these ways that we can't help thinking about the world, uh, and then we find that when we try to extend these ways of thinking about the world... Uh, too far, um, we find ourselves getting into conflicts with other ways that we have of thinking about the world. But I had two related questions about that. And one is whether it's necessary for the idea of the predicaments that we get into, that we get into them because uh, what gets us into the trouble is our own ways of thinking about the world. So in other words, could it be 
part of philosophy that the world itself uh, mm. presents us with predicaments. And then the related question has to do with the fact that I was thinking about the sentence that you have at the beginning of the Curse and Blessing section, uh, where you say, uh, certain ways of thinking force themselves on us not because the world cries out to be conceived those ways, but because that's how we roll. Mm. And I was thinking about that sentence, and I was thinking, uh, I wonder if... I was thinking, well, I wonder if I agree with that. Mm. Uh, I was thinking maybe some of these ways that you describe as ways that are how we roll are actually ways in which the world cries out to be conceived by us. And then I thought, that seems like... Uh, if I'm puzzled about that sentence, then it seems like I'm in a kind of philosophical puzzle. Mm. I'm in a philosophical jam, but it doesn't seem like a jam that I'm led into yeah. because of conflicts in my different ways of thinking. Because in a way, the conflict is about, well, is this even the right way to think about these yeah. ways of thinking? I, I thought... My message was a real downer, but yours seems even worse. <laughs> but I never, there's this phrase that people, some people here probably know what it means, like philosophical pessimism, like Schopenhauer or something like that. Yours seems like really, like potentially more pessimistic. I mean, so, I mean, um, right. Well, so I'm going to throw this right back at you because, uh, uh, so, I guess I, I, I want to say um, there's only two different like notions of the world that could be in play when you say, does the world throw this at us? Yeah. So it could be that you don't even have something worth calling the world that sort of repays kind of theoretical attention unless certain things have already been kind of worked over by some aspect of how we're put together, which we... Uh, then sort of stand aside and say, "Who me? Like I'm just just I'm just dealing with the world here." And so it could be. I'm certainly willing to say that you know. So, so the following could be possible. You know that we have to think of the word the world in 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 causal terms. Why and then blah blah blah. Something that you know you and Kant understand, but I don't. Uh, but then, having done so, we then say, "Oh my gosh, the the world sandbagged me here." And and, I, and and so it's it's making me do these things. It's presenting these problems. But whose fault was it really? I'm inclined to blame the transcendental self. <laughs> I blame the transcendental self for everything. <laughs> I don't know. So so I mean, you could you could take the view that you know if it wasn't for for us and the whole represent project of trying to represent things, uh, everything would just take care of itself and there you know the, uh, so it could be the, the the kind of world that does present us with with predicaments wouldn't even exist if we were here i don't i, I, I don't know that, that that's let's 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 uh i'd already gone three steps deeper than i know how to go but you're going two more steps <laughs> thanks for that um I wanted to ask about the upshot of your view, if you've thought about it. <laughs> um, so it seems like a worry for a lot of approaches to philosophy that conceive it as less in the pursuit of truth and more as like an error discovering 
type of mm. pursuit, mm. Um, run into this problem that it potentially makes philosophy come to an end a little bit sooner than we might expect. Mm. Um, so it seems like, I mean, I'm thinking of the color case in particular, often the hard part, like the feeling that we've run into something and things have become kind of intractable, comes fairly soon. I mean, mm. you, you know, think that you have this grip on what the colors are and then you like learn some science and then you're puzzled. And then philosophers keep talking about what oh, we can make of this for like decades and decades and decades. Yeah. Um, John among them. <laughs> and you know, maybe that's just a horrible mistake, um, yeah. but maybe there is something to that. And so, yeah, I'm curious, like once we're pinned, yeah. what do we do? Is there anything else? And, and I mean, I also kind of wondered whether, depending on your answer to this question, there's something to be said for like a bit of a cultural shift in philosophy towards maybe being more willing to back out or change your mind um, or start over or something like that. So, yeah. These are some very radical ideas you're suggesting. <laughs> Starting with changing your mind. Like, I don't know where that's coming from. <laughs> but yeah, no, I guess I haven't, I haven't read the book, uh, but isn't that like, what, there's this book, Everything Must Go? It's kind of about that, the, like, you know, if, if philosophers weren't such, weren't such like babies and we're marbling, you know, if we were marbling to grow up, we could, we could get past all these problems. And there's, a, uh, it's only because of sort of an infantile addiction to the very like problematic ways of, of, of thinking that we act all sort of scandalized by and say, oh my God, how did this happen? That, 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 that yeah. So philosophy is sort of a make work project for, for uh, uh, philosophers. I guess, I guess, I mean, uh, I guess I think people are like way too optimistic on the possibility of, in the same way as like you know, in 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 political philosophy, there's this sort of debate between a certain kind of conservative and a certain kind of progressive, both probably exaggerated, but you know, I'm a certain kind of conservative says you progressives kind of just think you can just. Like go into the lab and make up some you know cleverer form of social arrangement, and then if everybody just goes to sleep tonight, and then you give them the drugs, they stop caring about their children, or who knows what, <laughs> everything will be great in the morning. Uh, you know, and I, and 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 I, and I guess I, I don't have that. I'm not conservative about about many things, but but I I, I do have a little. I guess I think the idea that we can just sort of. Build up, you know. We'll just we'll just set up shop on the next island, <laughs> where there aren't as many like, uh, you know, termites or something. Th th that's going to work. I mean, we, uh, you know, Paul Churchland used to talk this way in like uh, a long time ago in Scientific Realism and the Plasticity of Mind. We'll stop talking about colors and we'll just, or or, or mental states. We'll we'll talk about sort of vectors in a seventy-nine million dimensional neural net. Kind of represent vector representation of well, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, I assume it's not like a coincidence. This isn't because like philosophers were sort of being sticks in the mud that that hasn't happened. I mean, it's just like <laughs> it's like there's certain things that in some ways, I rather you know put it the, the the other way around. The goal of everything isn't to find like an all-purpose way of of thinking that never lets you down in every setting. That would be horrible. Uh, you want, you want to, have, you, you know, you, you want to conceptually satisfy us. You want to, you want to find ways of thinking that work in almost all settings. 
and not be sort of uh, knocked off your uh, pre intellectual predilections by the fact that some philosopher thought of like some stupid case that never, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, the example that I often that I uh, go back to is like this idea that people, people sometimes have like so, so, about twin earth cases. You can say, oh, well, you know, uh, we're thinking about water here, but a molecule from molecule duplicate of us is thinking about twin water over there. And oh my gosh, you know, this is like a huge challenge to ordinary ways of understanding the contents of, of mental state. And to fight back, we have to like, carve out some super subtle notion of narrow content as like a function from context. Blah, blah. Anyway, and and so it seems like people are very happy uh, uh, taking this like thing that has never happened. Like that there's this planet where people are our exact same brains to, uh, as like a reason to totally redo our ways of conceiving mental states. But a thing that always happens every day all the time that people think of water in slightly different ways that would already kind of maybe motivate you to not assign so much importance to narrow content. Nobody says, oh, maybe we should privilege that one. I mean, there's like a huge range of predicaments and it's dumb. Like people who do like scientific modeling don't look for the same model for every problem that might arise. And there's certain problems that arise among normal people. and. You know, we work with models that work for most purposes. And the idea that we'll, we'll come up with like a super model that God would be happy to work with in all cases, you know, that's just sort of like, why? Why would, why would you want? Especially if you're like, your species evolved to find certain ways of thinking about things natural. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, so this question goes a little, little bit back to the beginning. Um, so you were talking about like what's the subject matter of philosophy, and you talked about some problems of um, construing it. And I was just wondering whether a lot of the problems that you pointed out are also like problems for what's the subject matter of normative inquiry more broadly, yeah. like inquiry about you know what we should do or what we should think and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and I was just wondering what do you think about that. And yeah, I guess I'm thinking like maybe there's like an important connection also between philosophical inquiry and normative inquiry. Yeah. One might even think that like a big chunk of philosophical inquiry is sort of like yeah. normative. It's not about like carving, you know, yeah. orienting ourselves in the logical space of all yeah. possible worlds, but like, you know, what should we do? How should right. we think? Anyways. No, no, that makes perfect sense. And, and, and the whole, there, there is a, a section of, of this that never made it in that said, look, you know, Maybe there already was a mistake, you know, in, in thinking of, of, you know, philosophy as as as, as truth seeking. Even if you know, on a second go round, you can reconceive questions about what to do as questions about like what's the true answer to like should I do this or that or something. That that's sort of a, you know that really we shouldn't be talking about worlds as you know things that verify or don't verify descriptive statements. So you should really be talking more generally about you know, choices that we might be faced with, and there's different possible answers, and who cares if there's some sort of metaphysical doodad that witnesses the difference between these. And, uh, and that, that's, that's, that's fair enough. And, and uh, uh, I mean, I think 
there's a, there's a risk of getting like super deflationary about what the subject matter is because subject matter is then kind of being kind of like questions, uh, or, you know, uh, and then and then and you know the subject matter of so it's sort of like well, what are you what are you studying in philosophy? He says, well, what we're asking about. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so maybe it's too much to hope for sort of a, a single field of play in which you can sort of like against which you can calibrate the, the, the different parts of philosophy are about because they do seem sometimes to sort of take in each other's wash and so on and you know, uh, but, but I, may, I may have gone too far in that direction. So that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Hi. So I'm an econ major. I'm not very familiar with any of the jargon in philosophy. We're all, we but... all envy you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, oh, you said econ. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I was under the impression that the kind of unifying factor between philosophy and the sciences and why I could very much assume that um, if somebody told me that they were an anti-moral realist, but they believe that mathematics is like some kind of objective truth, I would say that's probably inherently incorrect because of the direct link that philosophy and math both have just in their origin. So I kind of, my question is like, couldn't, isn't the very beginning of philosophy and let's say something like mathematics, which is, we would, you know, count to be a science. Um, that origin basically means it necessitates their similarity because, like in mathematics, yeah. you know, as soon as we head into second order logic, it's like, okay, well, now you're just defining axioms and postulates, and from there you're making proofs. And some of them happen to be objective because physics and engineering proves that these things work in real life, right? And then in philosophy, it's like, well, now we're going to start with these random assumptions, not random, but like assumptions we're making, and then from there build a constructive argument. Um, but whether or not we're discussing the meta of that argument, well, that's a whole other story. Yeah. So couldn't we, couldn't we just look at like the very beginning of both science, uh, both fields, I suppose, and say like, yeah, because they, but we both are having to make assumptions or axioms, they inherently are similar in that aspect? Yeah. Um, well, I almost think I... Uh, I understood that, which means I have to pretend to answer it. So, I mean, relating to the, to the previous question, I mean, there, if both math and, and morality, the, 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 there's a question, it's maybe more gripping in the case of morality, about what, I mean, everybody agrees that there's like better and worse answers to the questions, and, the, and, and, and then there, the, 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 that both fields raise. And, and then there's a, a second issue of, whether the betterness and worseness is to be conceived as the world being a certain way as opposed to another way, or say in the case of morality, some people say, well, no, it's, it's really, and this is getting back to what you were saying, I mean, it's really there's better and worse procedures. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's you know, there, there's, there's proper ways to reach decisions morally that aren't sort of happily conceived as ways that are better tracking what the moral facts are out there. Now, it's not as, as common in the case of math, but there's that view as well in math, you know, that, that ultimately the real difference between good and bad mathematical theories, well, I mean, at least one important difference is, I mean, you can, you can do math well or badly. It's a procedural difference. And then there's still a question why some mathematical theories that like caught on and like 
not any old random set of axioms that you would write down would catch on. Well, that might have something to do with which bodies of sort of uh, procedures actually are, are useful in dealing with the world we, we find ourselves in. So like arithmetic is really good because you can move like huge numbers of steps in a given direction. Uh, uh, I'm sure you, you know, you, you've noticed that. That's why arithmetic is good. Whereas if, if we live in a world where motion was rotational, say, and, and you know, after like six steps, you're back where you started from, then this other variant of arithmetic, modular arithmetic, where you know, once, you know, arithmetic mod, mod six, you know, two plus three is still five, but two plus five is one. You go back to one. You know, it, it's, it's, you know presumably, that, you know, you know, modular arithmetic is really important, but mostly because for the light it sheds on regular arithmetic. It's not like necessarily the thing that you directly apply. And so, it could, so one could take the view that in, in the case of morality and math, both, it's, it's really a correct, incorrect is really like to be drawn at a procedural level. And then there's a further question, which procedures does it make sense for creatures like us to be applying given the situations we, we find ourselves in. Uh, that's not really a, uh, an, an answer. But it's just to say, th there are the same kinds of questions of whether to look for truth in, in, in mathematics as there are in morality and, and as there are in philosophy. Yeah. Uh, yeah thank you for your talk. Uh, so the talk is called The Demarcation Problem for Philosophy. But I'm wondering, does that mean then that we should think that other disciplines aren't doing this kind of pointing out where we're pinned thing, and that's how we've demarcated philosophy from other disciplines? Or is it that maybe when some problem arises in another discipline mm. that sort of shows where you're pinned, that's when they're, they're actually doing philosophy there? Or is it? Well, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, certainly uh, philosophers haven't cornered the market on being pinned. People do get pinned in other fields. And there are parts of, you know, I don't know anything about, about this. Uh, Myself. This time I really mean it, as opposed to the other times I said I didn't know about stuff. Like, like in physics, people get get you know pinned in, in very various ways. Uh, um, I think on the whole, they tend not to sort of glory in it the way uh, philosophers do, and maybe even rightly do. It's sort of like, uh, I mean, it's sort of like what the human condition is to a certain kind of literature, uh, uh, you know, high high-flown literature, you know, getting in predicaments is to philosophers, whereas physicists, you know, they tend to think, well, we're going to have to deal with this at some point, but maybe we can sort of field it out to, like, that guy, you know, some, like, super, I mean, there are, to the very few physicists who actually, um, care about those questions, but most physicists can safely ignore, whereas philosophers don't say, oh, that's too hard. Let's field it out to the, the guys who like to deal with the hard stuff. And we're going to uh, continue with like, whether it's better if people have enough to eat. That's like, that's, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't think there's the same like, love of predicaments. But I could, I could, be, I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, yeah. No. Um, so it seems that there's uh, some um, 
question these days about whether it's helpful to gatekeep philosophy. And it also seems as though there are a lot of people in philosophy departments who aren't doing this. And I'm curious about whether you think that this is the only real philosophy and the rest of what we are doing, who aren't doing this, are not doing real philosophy. Actually, there's the cancellation letter in the mail to people. (laughs) 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 Uh, Oh, I think everyone here will understand if I refuse to answer that. Yeah, I'm more like trying to find a there in a place where it once seemed like a, a particularly deep kind of philosophy was, uh, I, I definitely don't want to uh, gatekeep being uh, ill-suited by nature to keeping anyone out of anything. <laughs> so, um, thanks so much for the interesting talk. I, I guess uh, I take it one feature of William's distinction between the absolute or God's eye perspective and the uh, parochial one that we just can't uh, escape. It's supposed to be that the uh, the former is in some sense uh, third personal and theoretical, while the latter is in some sense first personal and practical. And I guess I was wondering if those features of that contrast uh, were important for your use of Williams or if, uh, yeah, or if they, they weren't meant to be uh, playing a role in the argument. Well, the, the, the pun that was sort of intended was, was uh, this me relates to Hannah's uh, question earlier. I mean, it's true that, that the absolute conception is often identified with, like, you know, as Thomas Nagel puts a related idea, the view, the, the view from nowhere. But, I mean, it's interesting that you still say the, the, the view. In other words, you, 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 it, it's kind of like... Uh, there's a thing. There's a kind of thing you're trying to get at that seems like it's naturally put perspectively, and uh, and you try to sort of make that the perspective less and less uh, idiosyncratic. But it, it, it's hard to completely cure yourself, uh, to get it out of the out of the out of the out of the picture entirely. Which I, I thought was part of Williams's point that there's something sort of ironically self-undermining about you can never complete this project of trying to clean up perspectives so they stop being perspectives because uh, you know yeah um, but um, but um, so but your real question was um, is the is the kind of um, is is the, is the little bit the, the, the little kind of frog peering up from the bottom of the well, or the mug, or whatever the metaphor is that I'm seeing, like where, where maybe there's a place for old-fashioned deep philosophy to be. Is that always going to have a, a practical aspect? Is it like going to be like our trying to deal with a situation that arises for us? Maybe that's also related to another part of Hannah's question. Yeah, maybe the way maybe the, the way I put it made, made it sound that way, but it would be practical understood in a very kind of embracing sense where something counts as practical if the only ways we have of deciding what's really true in the world, which is, is like on the, supposed to be like what contrasts with a practical question, nevertheless raise this sort of uh, issue uh, for us. So if you count kind of theoretical quandaries, so to speak, quandaries that attend our best efforts to figure out what the world is, 
is like quandaries aside, so to speak, uh, as, as, as practical, then maybe yeah, there always would be something practical left. But I, I don't know, yeah. Uh, yes, please. I haven't had a philosophy class in 60 years at Cal, so I don't understand a lot of, of what you said here today. But um, my, my impression is the purpose of philosophy is to try to come to some objective truth, as is the purpose of religion, science, or art. But it seems like philosophy just wallows in the intellectual mud so much that uh, that I would think a lot of philosophers would say, I'm sick of being in this mud. Let me try religion or let me try something. But those are so limited too. I mean, my question is, do you think, do you think humans can wake up? You know, do you think that's possible to any kind of objective reality? Well, your question kind of has the form, isn't it everybody, when is everyone going to like go to the best place? Why are we all staying here? Well, we don't all agree what the best place is. I mean, everyone is like discomfort, you know, feels discomfort with different aspects of, of the way we, we approach things. But it's, it, it, it's not like, if, if we thought it was just like, uh, oh, my God, why am I keeping, why am I wearing these shoes where the laces are tied together? That's my problem. I mean, if it was that, you, if it was a localized thing, you could fix it and then, the door would be open, you know. Uh, that, 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 would, that, would, that would be one thing, but everyone's, you know, doing their, doing their best to make sense of questions that matter to them the best way they know how, and if they were aware of a better place to all go together, they would, they would, they would do it. So, uh, you know, some parts of intellectual life are more frustrating uh, than others, and philosophy certainly takes a, a good bit of blame, blame for uh, some of the, the, the frustration. But I, I don't really, the way, the, the, your question makes it sound as though it's like there's this unforced error that everybody's making, but I don't think there's an unforced error. I think, you know. Can I ask you something, maybe following up on that a little bit? That, um, <laughs> you, you didn't say very much explicitly about the value of philosophy, um, but j j just to give a little bit of friction <laughs> to, to, to the question, um, um, I, I teach a class with a physicist and a social psychologist, and it took me two or three times of doing this class to realize there was a big difference between what they were doing in their lectures and what I was doing in my lectures, yeah. that um, in their lectures, they were typically saying, here's the area and here's what we think is going on. Um, whereas in my lectures, I was never telling them, here's yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Um, I've, heard, I've heard that about your lectures. <laughs> 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 I may get a bit further, deeper into this. <laughs> but um, it seemed to me that what I was doing in, in, in my chats was saying, here's a puzzle, and what I want to do is to get each lecture, I want to get the puzzle sufficiently wedged yeah. into everybody's head yeah. that they can go away and think about it. And 
the, the, the theories, you know, I tell them some theories, but really they're all very unconvincing. And I, yeah. you know, I usually, uh, um, I'll tell you what I think, but really yeah. nobody else is convinced. By <laughs> so um, the important thing is the puzzle. Yeah. That, that's the thing that seems valuable, get, yeah. getting it in your head, sharply articulated, yeah. so you can think about it. And there's something kind of puzzling about that, because yeah. um, on the one hand, you think, well, what's going to be valuable is the solution. Right. You know, a puzzle isn't of any intrinsic importance. Yeah. It's the solution that's the important yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just instrumental to getting the solution. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like that to me yeah, in, yeah. in philosophy. It yeah. feels to me more like the value is in the puzzle. Yeah. And there's something yeah. disturbing about that. And I, yeah. I, 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 I just wish to yeah, <laughs> do you have any free association. That was, that was uh, like one aspect of... That, that's sort of like the, the, the ev evil twin of, uh, of, of Berkeley philosophy in the sense that, you, the, the, as, I, as I was thinking of it, and that's what I've been like wrestling with all these years, that you don't want to just be like fetishizing puzzles and where they have nothing to recommend them beyond that, oh, like people much smarter than you used to fetishize these same puzzles, you know. Uh, and, and so I, I was trying to, I, I'm more attracted to, 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 to the idea that uh, um, maybe this is a bit related, but g given that we kind of, of our nature, have to be sort of operating with principles that their econo ecological niche, so to speak, is only so big, yeah. uh, there's got to be debugging procedures. There's got to be things you've got to learn how to do. You say, oh, you know, you, um, when that happens, when you get cornered like that, you stop, like, saying why again and again or something like that. So there's this, there's this nice yeah. book by, by Dennett and somebody else, I can't remember, called Inside Jokes. that has the story about where, what humor is about. That I that kind of brings out like how how many people com commented on the affinity between humor and, and philosophy and lots of philosophy yeah. can, can be funny some even intendedly so and, <laughs> um, uh, and, and their idea is like well you're operating with all these sort of like uh, uh, subpersonal like fast and dirty mechanisms but those are going to misfire a lot of the time and so and you don't want to wait till the last possible minute. You, you want like you, you want to sort of like set up these artificial situations where things that you're spontaneously inclined to think you catch yourself in the act of thinking of them and you think oh that's funny that's a weird thing like I mean I find it funny to like how I keep on wondering whether the coin would come up heads even if I know that there's no nothing there to really be uh, wondering yeah. about and so yeah. I, I, I kind of think the one value philosophy can have. Is, is kind of it can have like an apologetic value in that it tells you you shouldn't don't need to apologize for like trying to hew to certain principles if the replacement principles would actually if you, if life goes better if you try to hew to these unmeetable principles than if you like really do hew to these like weaker principles that are like more consistent or or, or you know so, uh, so 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 I mean I think. So there's this there's this sort of um, apologetic aspect where you say you, you know you can look yourself in the mirror and, and say you know this is actually okay that you're you're, you're using fallible procedures mm -hmm. and then the, and then the a more a more positive part of philosophy would be you know develop like a bunch of tools for 
how to how to deal with the and there's a slapstick aspect to, to philosophy where you find yourself like out on a ledge. You think, oh my god, I like I followed all the rules and I and I, and, I, and it's sort of it, it's a way of leading yourself back in off yeah. off off, yeah. off the ledge. That reminds me of this this uh, philosophically interesting joke. I think it's I don't know if you, but it has to do with the ledge. Just, you know, I was uh, I was walking my my dog last night around the building like on, on the seventh floor along. The, uh, uh, Along the, along the ledge, and he says, you know, some people are afraid of heights. It's not me, I'm afraid of wits. <laughs> um, absolutely the last call, Any, Be quick. There's a certain subject matter in philosophy where if you asked anybody, they would say that this is like philosophy Yes. For example, like, what is justice? So you ask them, what, is this philosophy? They would say, yes, it is philosophy. Uh, if you ask them, oh, is uh, the dis distinguishing belief versus knowledge, is this philosophy? They would say, yes. And so the natural thing to ask is, well, why do we say yes to yeah. both of these um, subject matter, right? And the natural thing to do is to construct some kind of system as to distinguishing what is philosophy versus not philosophy. But yeah. my thought is that, is it possible that these are just kind of atoms? Like, you know, just, by atom I mean like it's a, it's a statement where you just say yes and there's no reason for why you say yes. Uh, this is coming right. from the idea of, um, say like, Michael Humer, under the banner of yeah. ethical intuitionism, right? There are yeah. certain things that you say are moral statements or just morally good statements. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, well, I mentioned the paradox of inquiry uh, briefly. You know, if you didn't already you, you, in this context, if you didn't already know what philosophy was, then you wouldn't even understand the the question supposedly being posed when you say, "Well, what's philosophy? What's a philosophical problem?" Uh, and and one answer that's been given, and maybe it's a bit like what Michael Humer says, is that well, you might have like um, recognitional ability with respect to certain things. And you're wondering what the deeper principle is. You know, uh, you, know you, you can say, look, I'm, like so, most of us are, you know, very few people will say, I wish I could tell the difference between good jokes and bad jokes. It just really eludes me. <laughs> people are, are very, like, uh, Descartes says so, so somewhere, he says, you know, co common sense is, must be, of all things, the most equally distributed since everyone is so well satisfied with their own share. <laughs> uh, and so, like, so people kind of think they can tell what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. People think they can tell like, what's a philosophical question and what isn't. You might grant them that competence. Why wouldn't you? There's a fair amount of non-collusive agreement on the topic. It's not like you constantly have to like, browbeat people. Say, Stop calling that... Philosophy. I mean, one, one, of, one of the, the things that Sally spends a lot of time doing is trying to get people to stop saying, that's not, ph <laughs> that's not uh, philosophy. She even tried to stop me, knowing that it's hopeless. Uh, but um, so, so it could be that you know, the answer to your question is people, don't know, people know the difference in the sense that they can recognize the difference. And then, the, the, and, then, and then it could be that they're wondering what they're really picking up on. Is it just like? Is just like, you know, people can also can recognize the difference between what's cool and what isn't cool in a certain like 
high school, uh, and, and probably you're not wondering, you know, let's get a big grant so we can figure out what they're really picking up on at that high school when they call things cool or not cool. And so there's, there's a bit of a, a bet here. Like, so, you know, people, there's these things you recognize as philosophical questions, and then there's this bet. Uh, hopefully it isn't all just a complete cultural artifact that's, com- you know, completely path-dependent, like a bunch of people, like Aristotle asked a bunch of questions. Some of them end up being good. They were taken over by scientists. <laughs> Some of them we just can't give up on, and that's what we're like. You know, hopefully that isn't it, but maybe, you know, that could turn out to be it. Yeah. Okay, well, th- that was a thrilling talk, so thank you, thank and you. for a fascinating and generous discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.